Why is nothing happening? Although you've proved that Assad attacked us with toxic gas. That's why it's simply inexplicable that Germany repeatedly sent large amounts of fluoride to Syria. We took a team to Damascus and interviewed witnesses there, witnesses to Khan Shaikun. Al-Yom, Syria's children, the toxic gas and us. Episode 3, Yusuf's assignment. We now know what happened on April 4th in Khan Shaikun. The damage inflicted on families by the toxic gas. That's also why we promised Yusuf we'd speak to the people who later investigated the attack. He'd send us one question via WhatsApp. Why is nothing happening? Although you've proved that Assad attacked us with toxic gas. We leave Syria and travel to Switzerland, to a place that appears not one to be found, surrounded by 3,000-meter mountains, accessible only via a narrow road through a forest. The Spitz Laboratory, one and a half hours' drive from Zurich. We've arrived at a grey complex of buildings at the foot of a mountain, just next door to a military site. Spitz is one of the most important designated laboratories, working together with the Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, or OPCW. The organization was founded by the United Nations to investigate crimes like the attack on Khan Shaikhun. Peter Siegenthaler has already led several investigations into the deployment of chemical weapons in Syria. The scientist receives us dressed in a checked shirt and jeans and takes us into the laboratory. The chemists at the Spitz laboratory analyze scraps of clothing or samples of earth to see if they come into any contact with toxic gas. And if so, which kind of gas was used? To do this, the samples have to be run through a variety of tests. It's not like CSI Miami. It works in the same way as preparing a filter coffee. The earth is rinsed with solvent, then filtered, and what comes out at the bottom contains sarin or sarin-related compounds. With this extract, I then go to the analysis systems and see whether I find sarin or sarin-related compounds. We know that the experts here analyzed the samples from the 2013 sarin attack in Damascus. It's likely that earth from Yusuf Street was also tested here. But the precise nature of the commissions received by the lab from the OPCW is top secret. This is how the International Commission of Inquiry protects its labs from political influence. After all, the results from Switzerland are fed directly into the investigative report. In the case of Khan Shaikhun, this was published a few months after the chemical attack. As well as chemical soil samples, the report evaluated videos and photos, witness statements, victim autopsy reports, medical assessments and technical examinations. The report's conclusion is obvious. The Syrian regime is responsible for the toxic gas attack. But then something happened. Something that always happens when science finds something out and the politicians don't like it. They issue denials or cast doubt on the facts. Russia described the report as unprofessional and amateurish, using those exact words. Technically, they said it wasn't possible to drop a chemical weapon like that. That's a claim that could be debated by a panel of experts, but everything else in the report and all the facts we presented have never been questioned. They just made a general statement that the report was poor. 
But up to now, no one's presented any evidence suggesting where the report might have got it wrong. Stefan Muge was one of the people heading the commission of inquiry. His office is on the same floor as the laboratory. Moge may be a chemist, but when he talks, he sounds like a diplomat. After all, this is a sensitive issue. The war in Syria is also a proxy war between the superpowers USA and Russia. And in the Syrian conflict, each and every actor is pursuing his interests in a hard-nosed fashion. Shortly after the publication of the report, Russia used its veto in the UN Security Council to effectively abolish the Commission of Inquiry. It was the tenth time Russia had used its veto to protect Assad. Put simply, if there was another toxic gas attack, there won't be an official body to investigate it. We wondered, what else could Syrians do apart from leave their country, driven away by fear and hopelessness? Since the outbreak of the war in 2011, 5.4 million Syrians have fled their homeland. We leave Switzerland and head back to Germany, a country that's accepted around 12% of all Syrian refugees, some 700,000 people. Europe didn't really feel the full force of the refugee crisis until the late summer of 2015. At that time, within the space of just a few weeks, more than one million people tried to reach the European Union via the Mediterranean Sea, almost half of them from Syria. Most of them made it to Greece, but their final goal was further, as far as Germany. At this point, we recalled some heartening scenes. People were welcomed at train stations. Families prepared food together and gave their time to help out. Some Germans cleared rooms in their homes for refugees. For example, for Turkey. Turkey is Yusuf's cousin. He also fled in 2015, together with his wife, Judy with nothing but their identity documents and a small backpack full of clothes. Theirs was the classic refugee story. By boat over the Mediterranean, the Balkan route, then a refugee hostel in Gießen. He now lives in Wiesbaden, in the southwest of Germany. We travel there by train to visit him and to find out if at least he's doing better than his relatives in Syria. We can't imagine enjoying life if our family isn't doing okay. And whenever we do do something, I don't like showing it. I'd never post it on Facebook because I'd feel guilty if my family there saw it. Turkey chats daily with his family in Kanjaykhun. Even now, he's sitting with his mobile phone on a patterned couch in his basement apartment. There's a gold-framed picture of an alpine panorama on the wood-paneled wall behind him. Next to that, photos of friends and relatives, including Yusuf's father. Many of them are dead now. His wife Judy is standing in the kitchen. She's made bulgur wheat salad, lentil soup and chicken. It smells of garlic and Arabic spices. Judy takes two extra plates out of the cupboard for Irmgard and Erhard Acker. The German couple took the Syrian pair into the home a year ago. Now everyone feels a little like they're part of an extended family. Yes, that's my grandpa. Really, it's like he's my real grandpa. 
It was here, while sitting at this dining table a year ago, that Mr. Akka opened the newspaper and saw an advert. Syrian couple seeks apartment. And then I said, well, there must be something we can do. And we both agreed to have them here. Turkey often comes up here and talks to my husband or asks for advice. And we've got good contacts. Up to this point, this is a heartwarming story of welcome. But the initially positive stance of many Germans towards the refugees has meanwhile turned sour. Politicians say the country has been overburdened. There's a great deal of frustration, even hatred, and a new party in the German parliament, the right-wing extremist AFD, which stokes anti-refugee sentiments. It's not uncommon for refugees like Turkey to be thought of as terrorists. And people who actually help, like Irmgard and Erhard Acker, are often marked as do-gooders. We find this incomprehensible. Germany's responsibility in all of this is further crystallized as we continue our research. Specifically into the question of where the toxic gas actually came from. Back in Berlin, we meet the disarmament expert Jan van Aken. He tells us that in the 1970s and 80s, German companies sold huge amounts of precursor chemicals to Syria. And as he explains, the government was fully aware of what was going on. It's absolutely clear and proven that the Germans, in the 70s first and then the early 80s, supplied Syria with at least two complete chemical weapons factories. It's been proven that up until 2011, large amounts of fluoride were sent to Syria from Germany. Before Jan van Aken became a member of parliament, he was a UN weapons controller for biological warfare agents. As he explains to us, fluorides are what are known as dual-use items. This means they have a civilian application, for example in the manufacture of toothpaste. But at the same time, they can also be used in the production of chemical warfare agents, such as sarin. The export of fluorides wasn't halted until 2011. To date, none of the companies concerned have been called to account, neither for the export of chemicals, nor the construction of toxic gas plants. Merck, a German company operating in the chemical and pharmaceutical sector with 50,000 employees in 70 countries, was one of them. But no matter how often we contact them, they do not give us an official statement about when, what, and to what extent they supplied to Syria. This means we'll never be able to tell Yusuf for sure whether the toxic gas that killed half of his family also came from Germany. But we have an idea. Our reporter Moas collects questions from people in Kanchaihun that we'd like to put to German politicians on their behalf. The questions are sent to us on WhatsApp. For example, how is Germany conducting itself in the wake of the toxic gas attack? What are you doing to oust the Assad regime from power? Will Germany negotiate with Assad again one day? Why is Germany not putting any pressure on Russia, although it's cooperating with the Syrian regime? What is Germany doing after the 4th of April attack to stop the suffering of the people? We send these questions to the most important German politicians of all parties, among them ministers and state premiers 
and explain what the Ilyam Project is all about. What answers do they give us? None at all. Instead, they tell us that the subject is not in their area of responsibility. A great project, they say, but it's just not the best time right now. They all find some reason to explain why they can't provide any answers. It's a shameful state of affairs. But we don't just want to pass the responsibility onto others. We wonder, can a podcast like this help in any way? Change something? Although as journalists we're obliged to remain objective and distanced, the team considers how we can help Yusuf and the other children of Khan Shaykhun. We Skype with him again. He's at home. It's the morning. He couldn't go to school because the roads were too dangerous today. There's no school today. The sky is too full of fighter jets. It's so important that children in Syria regularly attend school again to maintain a sense of normality. And only education can prevent children from being recruited to fight in the war. In Khan Shaykhun, two out of three children are still able to go to school. But in other parts of Syria, the figure is far less. This is because as well as hospitals, the regime also often targets schools. It's a demoralization tactic. Up to now, no one has been funding the schools. No one. Not at all. We've got no heaters and no windows. No one's funding them. Not at all. Yusuf's old school was bombed as well. Now he goes to a girls' school, also open to boys at present. A two-story building without windows and doors. It's cold both inside and out at the moment, because the radiators have been stolen. We reached the conclusion. The most helpful thing we can do is to improve the situation in the school itself. We discover that the school needs diesel-powered heaters, because the electricity supply is so unreliable. So we look into ways of organizing donations. Then we ask Moaz whether he can get the heaters in Khan Shaykhun or in Turkey. He's looking into it at the moment. We'll report on his progress. After all, the fate of this 12-year-old boy is also our responsibility. The last time we Skyped with Yusuf, at the end of the conversation he said, please don't forget us. We'll be visiting Yusuf again soon. The boy who's come to symbolize our obligation not to forget the people of Syria. We'll be in touch again. That's a promise. You've been listening to Al-Yom, Syria's Children, The Toxic Gas and Us. The podcast that gives the voiceless a voice. Thank you.